Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, this is David Feingold, the president of Chatham University and your host for the Future of Higher Education podcast on the New Books Network. Today's episode is going to be a bit different than our usual ones where we speak with a current or former college or university president or an expert on higher ed to talk about some of the key issues we're seeing in today's higher ed marketplace. Today, I'm going to give you my own views on one of the key issues we see in today's higher ed debates, namely, should college be free? And uh, in the course of discussing this, have a chance to share with you some of my own background that led me into comparing different countries' education and training systems. So I'd like to make the argument to you that free college, while it sounds on the face of it a, a very appealing notion, Uh, given that we know that most of the new jobs that will be created in today's knowledge economy demand a college degree or higher, um, is actually a bad idea. And to make that case, I'd like to share with you examples from two different countries, uh, the UK and Germany, and then give you four arguments in the US context about why free college is a bad idea. And then finally wrap up with a more upbeat note, namely the fact that we have all the elements we need of building a more equitable funding system for higher ed in the U.S. already in place that we can leverage uh, going forward. So to start the argument, uh, let's go back to the 1980s when I arrived in the U.K. as a graduate student, having never been outside the U.S. and was looking for a topic for uh, my dissertation. And I settled on a paradox. that, you know, was really hard for me to understand. And that was that at that time in the UK, only about 15% of young people were graduating with a college degree. And fewer than 50% were actually staying on uh, in what we would think of as high school to finish after the age of 16. Um, And that was despite the fact that college at that time was tuition-free, And if you were a lower or middle income student, um, you got a means tested grant to pay for your room and board as well. So so the system was entirely free and yet very few people were going. And so I, as a kind of naive American there asked the question, well, why would this be the case? And when I dug into the literature, the prevailing explanation at the time was that this was a class issue, that uh, the British working class was not interested in further or higher education, and therefore that the system reflected that um, and that uh, it was going to be very difficult to change because that class system was so deeply rooted. Well, on the face of it, that just seemed wrong to me. It was hard for me to believe that uh, most families wouldn't want their uh, children to be able to benefit from education. And so I developed a new theory called the low-skill equilibrium, which said actually young people were responding rationally to the incentives that they faced in the system. 
at that time, the way the incentives work were because higher ed was very expensive to the government, paying all the tuition and the the room and board for for the lower income students. Uh, the exam system that determined who could go to university effectively operated like a, a very steep funnel. So at 16, uh, students had to pass the what was then the O levels, now the GCSE. And only uh, a certain percent would pass that exam and stay on to, to finish school. And then the A levels, which were given when they were 18, the university entrance exam, were graded on a curve. So only about 20% of the population could pass. And therefore, that exam system rationed who would actually get those valuable higher ed places. So my theory said if it's these incentives and not the uh, class system, then if we change those, uh, it should actually change behavior. And the cool thing was, <laughs> you don't often get this as an academic, but by working with the policymakers, first in the, uh, then the Thatcher government and then in the labor government that followed, uh, over a period of a relatively few years, we were able to change most of the incentives and structures in the system, the exams, the way higher ed was funded, um, and as a result, we were able to bring about a dramatic change in behavior. So within just over a generation, it went from 15% to today, when a higher percent of the population in the UK graduates with a college degree than did at that time. And yet they're having to pay because the UK adopted a system modeled on on Australia, which said, um, we think it's only fair that the graduates who are benefiting from a college degree should pay back some of those costs by paying a, a graduate tax or, or a loan repayment through the tax system for uh, once they start earning over a certain amount that they need to cover their basic expenses. And so that system actually served to really expand the funding for higher ed and enable the colleges and universities to expand the number of places and has worked very well with very low dropout rates since then. Another cautionary tale from abroad is that of Germany. Germany, like most of continental Europe, has made higher ed uh, free for, for many, many years. And yet the result was that Germany had a low performing higher education system. Many uh, students taking a, a number of years to complete their degree because there was no real cost to them to stay on in the system. They weren't paying any uh, tuition. They weren't paying fees to it. And so there was a, a, a very long dragged out process and uh, a system that worked nowhere near as well as the German apprenticeship system, the dual system that was the admirable was admired around the world as producing a really high level of technical um, and hands-on skills for a majority of the German workforce. So let's turn now to the U.S. and the four arguments for why in the U.S. context, I think uh, free college is a bad idea. The first reason for this is that college isn't free. In fact, the costs of delivering a high-quality degree are going up, not down, despite the explosion of online and hybrid learning options. This is because running a good college, particularly a residential college experience, is much like running a small city and has all of the costs associated with that. And on top of that, we have new costs that are imposed on the system through regulations and the needs of today's student. And so some of the areas which we've seen a real increase in costs are things like Title IX, 
a focus on diversity, equity, and inclusion, and a huge increase in the number of mental health issues that students are bringing to campus. A second uh, reason why uh, I think it's a bad idea for uh, college to be free is that what we've seen is when you have a major recession, uh, who's going to pay? If it's all relying on the government, then the the source of public funds is likely to be reduced as tax revenues go down in a major recession, as we saw in 2008 and nine. just when we need greater investment in the system because more people are looking to go back to college during recessions. And so what we're likely to see if we rely on free college is a defunding of the higher ed system, which has really been a, a key source of competitive advantage for the U.S. If you want a good illustration of that, just look at the case of California. In California, they had a public higher ed system in the 1960s as a result of the Kerr plan that was really the envy of the world, the community colleges, the state colleges, the Cal State system, and then the UCs, the, the top research universities like Berkeley and UCLA and others. Well, that system was very low cost, well-funded, um, and, and did a great job of educating a high percent of the California population. Well, when Proposition 13 was passed and that capped the property tax revenue, then over a number of decades, higher ed was defunded. And today, it's very difficult for a student to graduate on time in four years if they enter the Cal system. And so that's the risk if you make it too dependent on public funding. Third, I would argue that today we already have too many students going to college. Many of them go because their peers go, because it's a nice place to be, but without any clear sense of the benefit they're going to get from it and the, the motivation to really apply themselves hard. As a result, what we see is that the challenge in the U.S. isn't that students don't go to college, but we don't have enough completing. And so making a good free any economist will tell you, will produce waste because people are not having to, to treat it carefully. And so the fourth argument for why free college is a bad idea is we shouldn't treat it as a free consumption good, but rather we should treat it as what it is, one of the best investments an individual can make. And so what we should do is recognize that that investment, which can produce a return of more than a uh, million dollars per year in the difference between college and a high school graduate's earnings over a lifetime is one that an individual benefits from and therefore should pay back as works in the Australian and the UK system. So as I mentioned, the good news is we already have the two key things we need to make the US higher ed system fairer and to fund so that all students, whatever their economic circumstances can, who want to go and can benefit from higher ed should be able to do so. And the way to do that is first to simply double the funding for the Pell Grant so that we both increase the grant so it keeps up with inflation, which we had failed to do since 2010. And secondly, that we expand the families who are eligible so those who are uh, you know, lower income but now don't qualify for Pell, we raise the income threshold so more families who are lower class or lower middle class would benefit, those up to, say, $75,000 in family income. By doing those two changes, we could effectively make community college free because the grant would cover all of those costs, 
but we would also make the choice the one of the individual student. So if they prefer not to go to a community college, but instead to go to a four-year institution, like a private nonprofit like Chatham or the, the other um, institutions like that, more than 700 of them across the U.S., which do an outstanding job of educating Pell-eligible students with higher graduation rates than the public system, they would be able to choose that option. And then for the students who don't qualify for expanded Pell, we can take the income contingent loan repayment option, which is already true for many federal loans, and expand that so it operates like the UK or Australia system, where we say to people, if you're middle or upper income, you can borrow the cost of your college degree, and you'll start paying it back when you're earning enough, uh, and you're starting to get the returns from that, and you'll pay back until you've paid back the cost of the degree that you didn't pay for up front. And so the, the person who benefits um, bears a fair shared burden. The public covers some of the cost, and everybody will be better off. So that's my offer for an alternative to the free college proposal. Look forward to uh, having you join us for the conversations that will be coming up with many uh, top college and university presidents on the podcast. Thanks so much.